there is a lot that we're going to try to get through this morning. We're going to try to make it through all of chapter 17. So if you want to open your Bibles up with me to Revelation chapter 17, and we will get right into it. Chapters 17 and 18 both outline the judgment on Babylon. Chapter 17 concentrates on religious Babylon, while chapter 18 concentrates on the economic or commercial side of Babylon. And there are a number of views that people have held throughout history as to the identity of this woman that we're going to see, this woman, Mystery Babylon. At first, in the first century, Christians thought that this was pagan Rome, because that's what they were surrounded with. That's what they knew. But the Roman Empire started to wane, and that view died off. Then around the Reformation, everybody thought, well, this has to be the Catholic Church. And admittedly, some things do fit there, and I think that that has something to do with it, but still not getting to the root of it. Then there are some, the preterists, who take the historical interpretation of Revelation, see the woman as apostate Jerusalem. And then we have those who take this woman to be the literal Babylon, the historical Babylon in Iraq. And this view is fairly popular in the cavalry circles. Chuck Missler holds this view, among others. The only problem with this view is that literal Babylon will have to be rebuilt before Christ's return. Now, that's only a problem if you don't see what's actually happening in the world. Saddam Hussein, when he was in power, has poured millions of dollars into actually rebuilding Babylon. And so this is a position that I think is very likely. Some others still have thought that America, or even specifically New York City, is Mystery Babylon, this woman. That's not true, and we'll look at some reasons why this morning. Apostate Christianity has been identified with this woman, and, you know, that there's actually part of that that is true as well. You see several of these that actually have some grains of truth. When you realize that Mystery Babylon is just a conglomerate of all these different religious systems, it makes sense why some of these fit. Like several of these fit some parts of the puzzle, and some more than others. You've got groups that think that this Mystery Babylon is the Illuminati, the New World Order, Um, Again, there's some credence to that. One of the best-fitting views, I think, is that this woman is Mecca slash Saudi Arabia slash Islam, the Middle East religion. And this is Joel Richardson's position. He's put out a bunch of great work on this. And we won't actually discuss all of these positions this morning and we won't be very concerned with any one of these views. But there are a few criteria that this woman must meet in order for a position to be considered. There are certain things that have to be met according to the scripture. And we will talk about all these criteria as we move along. There's seven criteria that must be met in order for a position to be worth considering. First, she sits in a desert. We'll look at all of these in more detail. She sits in a desert. She is a literal city. That's number two. She is portrayed as royalty. She's seen as very wealthy. That's three. Number four, she is the greatest false religion. Number five, she is the primary source of Christian martyrdom at the time. Six, she spreads her religious system. And seven, the kings of the earth live luxuriously with her. That's what we're going to focus on going through chapter 17. 
Now, there are several chapters in the Bible that are devoted to talking about and outlining the destruction that is still yet to come on Babylon. Obviously, Revelation 17 and 18, that's where we are this morning. Also, Isaiah 13 and 14, and Jeremiah 50 and 51. These six chapters, the two in Revelation, two in Isaiah, two in Jeremiah, give us a very solid understanding of the future of this great Babylon. I would encourage you this week to go through those six chapters, read them all in one sitting, and you will come across some things that will parallel between those different passages. Completely different places in the Bible, but there are some very interesting parallels. Um, Some we'll talk about this morning. These chapters are outlining a future judgment. Okay, Some will try to say that this fall of Babylon and the destruction thereof happened in 539 BC when Cyrus the Great came in and took over Babylon. That's not what these passages are talking about. And it's very clear when you go through and read them. The kind of destruction talked about in these passages is far beyond what happened with Cyrus the Great. Um, Plus, the same event, the destruction of Babylon, is spoken of in Revelation as yet still future. So it has to come after 95 AD when Revelation was written. This is a future judgment of Babylon. In these passages, we see that Babylon must become uninhabitable. Not just uninhabited, but uninhabitable. And Jeremiah 51.29 outlines this for us. It says, And the land will tremble and sorrow, for every purpose of the Lord shall be performed against Babylon to make the land of Babylon a desolation without inhabitant. A few verses later in Jeremiah 51.37 Babylon shall become a heap, a dwelling place for jackals, an astonishment and a hissing without an inhabitant. And again, a few verses later, Jeremiah 51, 43, her cities are a desolation, a dry land and a wilderness. That word wilderness will come back to us. A land where no one dwells, through which no son of man passes. Not only will nobody live there, nobody's going to pass through there. Why is that? It could be because of a nuclear fallout. You know, the radiation is too great in that area for man to pass through. That's just one thought. And though this can't be seen to describe Cyrus's conquest of the city, we know that his men dammed up the Euphrates River. They, They diverted some of the water to lower the water level in the river. They made it low enough to where they could wade in and tunnel under the city walls. They snuck in and took the city pretty much without a fight. There there wasn't much contest there. The Babylonians at the time in the city were preoccupied with one of their religious festivals. They didn't even notice the invading army. Um, So Cyrus was able to capture that city for the Persians Now, I did notice a very interesting parallel between that account and Revelation 16.12. We went through this a couple weeks ago, um, or was it last week? They're all blending together. Um, Revelation 16.12 says that the drying up of the Euphrates will prepare the way for the kings of the east. Interesting that Cyrus the Great diverted waters of the Euphrates in order to conquer Babylon. There may be something to that. I don't know exactly what it is, but I wanted to bring it to your attention. Now, a lot of people see this mystery Babylon, this great harlot riding the beast. We're about to read through the passage, don't worry. And they look at it and they're like, well, I don't really want to deal with this. I don't even really want to give it any thought because who am I to understand these things? You know, I'm going to let the scholars, the prophecy buffs deal with this. 
and I'm going to put my effort somewhere else. And that's a very natural way to look at things. But although this passage on the surface seems to be something that you shouldn't really worry about, there are some very profound implications to who we ascribe this woman to be. I want you to to look in verse 7. The angel, as we'll see, is going to take a little jab at John. He says, why do you marvel? Like, come on, man. Surely you saw this coming. Something. He expected to John to know what was up. He shouldn't have been as surprised about what he was seeing. And we are also held accountable to know what the scripture says about future events. We know when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the donkey, the triumphal entry, he wept for the people of Jerusalem because they did not realize what was happening, that their Messiah had come to them. And it was outlined in scripture, the scripture that they have, the Old Testament, told of a future event, which was the triumphal entry of their Messiah. They missed it. We are held accountable to know what the scripture says. And there's more implications to this. If you think that this is America, you're in trouble because you're still here. Scripture calls those who read it to flee from Babylon in several different places. If you think this is America, you got to get out. If you're going to obey God. But if it's not America, then we're good, you know? And I think that it's very sad to see people who take this as America because a lot of them have wasted a lot of time, effort, and resources getting out of America. A lot of them move up to Calgary in Canada right across the border. Like, that's going to help with God's wrath coming down. Like, oh, I'm right across the border. I'm safe. Anyways, Chapter 17 can be divided conceptually into two sections. The first section is John's description of this vision of the woman riding the beast. And we see this description in verses 1 through 6. The second conceptual section is the angel's explanation of John's vision. And that's contained in verses 7 through 18. Let's read through the first six verses of the chapter, and then we will look at it a little bit closer. Verse one, then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and talked with me, saying to me, come, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, which was full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the filthiness of her fornication. And on her forehead a name was written. Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. I saw the woman, drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I marveled with great amazement. John is astounded by the things that he's seeing. And I don't blame him, but it seems that that angel does. Verse 1, then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and talked with me. Remember, we just got done seeing these bowls of God's wrath poured out on the earth, and they were held by seven angels, one for each of the bowls, and they poured them out in succession, one through seven. John recognizes this angel that comes to talk to him as one of the seven who poured out their bowl on the earth. 
He came and talked with me, saying to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters. So the angel is cluing John in as to what he's about to witness. And later, as the angel is explaining this vision, he tells John, The waters which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. So we see the great harlot who sits on many waters. The harlot's influence reaches across international borders. It spans the globe and infects diverse people groups. Peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. It's far-reaching influence. Today we know that the world is no longer divided by international borders. International borders are a thing of the past. The world is now divided by currency. The euro, for example, unites the European nations together. They're trying to introduce the Amero for Americas to unite them together. And it's all feeding into this Babylonian political system. And we'll look more at the political side next time, but um, it's a one-world type of government. If you can get all of these separate nations to come together into a confederation of nations, and you just have three or four confederations to deal with, then it's a lot easier to get them to unite together, rather than having all of these hundreds of countries that you're trying to work with. If they're bound together in a confederation, they're easier to manipulate. The great harlot who sits on many waters, a diverse influence across the globe, with whom the kings of the earth committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. Again, this is like a preamble to what John is about to see. This angel is giving him some insight into what he's about to see. The kings of the earth committed fornication with this system, with this religious system, this woman. In other words, the kings of the earth are in bed with this religious system. They're using her to become rich and powerful. And the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. This system, this woman, makes the inhabitants of the earth, that is, the earth dwellers, katokeo, drunk with her fornication. And in the Bible, we know that harlotry or adultery is consistently used to describe idolatry. Adultery is consistently used to describe idolatry. Several times we see that Israel played the harlot with other gods forsaking their union with the one true God, chasing after false gods. Jezebel is described as a harlot, and her main thing that she did was bringing idolatry into the kingdom. Revelation 2, 20 and 22 also describes Jezebel as a harlot who introduced idolatry. This woman is a harlot, the great harlot, who introduces her idolatrous religion to the world, the entire world. And in partaking of this religious system, the inhabitants of the earth are made drunk by it. They're intoxicated by it. There's something about this religious system that grips men and makes them nonsensical. They go crazy. The wine of her fornication is the result of her spiritual fornication. That's what the men of the earth, the earth dwellers, are becoming drunk on. Verse 3. So he carried me away in the spirit 
into the wilderness. Now, this is where John is actually going to start seeing this vision. He is on earth now, in the wilderness. And this unassuming sentence carries some vast implications. Our English text uses the definite article before spirit and before wilderness. In the spirit, into the wilderness. That definite article of the is not present in the original text. So it would read like, so he carried me away in spirit into wilderness. What do we think of when we hear wilderness? It's probably some kind of forest or jungle, something wild. That's not the picture that this word wilderness would conjure up in the minds of people of John's day. A wilderness to them is a desert. In that part of the world and in that time period, wilderness refers to a desert. A barren stretch of land, not a lush forest. So that's actually where John is taken to observe this vision. He's taken to the desert in spirit. And since there's no angelic interpretation of the desert, the angel doesn't say anything about it, we are led to take a more literal approach here. John saw this woman, which we know to represent a city, which we'll get to, in the desert. And this is significant because it can help us eliminate some of the proposed locations of the city of Babylon. If it's not in a desert area, it doesn't fit into this framework. It does not meet this criteria. And this calls to question those who propose Babylon is America, among others. Rome is another. That is the first criteria that I mentioned at the beginning. It's located in a desert. And the second criteria... Um, In order to be fruitful in our consideration of Babylon, we must recognize that this is a literal city that we're talking about. That is your second criteria. This must be a literal city. And yes, it also stands for an apostate religious system and a powerful political system, but these systems have their headquarter and are governed out of the literal city of Babylon. The grotesque woman that John sees on the beast is the metaphor, and the city of Babylon is what she represents. Okay. Eight times Babylon is referred to as a city, six times as the great city, and language is used to describe Babylon that can be applied to a city proper. The city's exports are actually listed in chapter 18, verse 11 through 13. It goes through a list of her exports. It comes across kind of like a grocery list. And if you were at home and you saw your wife's grocery list sitting out on the counter, and you were going to go to the store to be helpful and get her groceries for her, You take that grocery list to the store, you're walking in the produce, like, I wonder what she means by an apple. Could that be apple juice? Could it be carrots? It's not mysterious. The grocery list says what it means and means what it says. It's not cryptic. It's the same with these exports. They are to be taken as literal products that this city produces. In the very last verse of chapter 17, the angel clarifies, just in case we have any doubts, he says, and the woman whom you saw is that great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. The angel, in his explanation, calls this woman the city. There's no double metaphor here. We are talking about a literal city. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast 
which was full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. This is what John is actually seeing now in this desert. There's a scarlet beast, and there's a woman sitting on it, ostensibly controlling it, at least enough to ride it and make use of it. The woman is in control of the beast here. It won't always be that way. We'll see later. On a scarlet beast, which was full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. So this is describing the beast now, not the harlot. The beast is full of names of blasphemy. And of course, no harlot could stay in business with seven heads and ten horns. So we we can take this as talking about the beast. That was supposed to be funny, by the way. Thank you. Verse 4. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls. This picture is one of wealth. This is our third criteria. Gaudy, superfluous wealth. She's arrayed in royal colors, which are purple and scarlet, and adorned with gold, precious stones, and pearls. She also holds this golden cup, which is filled with the abominations and filth. It says, having in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the filthiness of her fornication. And this image of a golden cup was probably familiar to John. Jeremiah 51.7 says, Babylon was a golden cup in the Lord's hand that made all the earth drunk. The nations drank her wine, therefore the nations are deranged. They're crazy. They've gone crazy after this system. And even though this woman holds a golden cup, Jeremiah makes it plain that Babylon is the Lord's golden cup. It's like some inception here with the different cups. Babylon is the Lord's golden cup. He holds it in his hand. He does with it what he pleases. God removes kings and raises up kings. And even in the last days, he will use the rulers of the world to accomplish his purposes. Babylon is nothing more than a tool that God will use to bring about his purpose. And on her forehead, a name was written. It was common in John's day for harlots to have their name written somewhere on their person, either on their person or on their clothes, uh, but more inconspicuously. But this woman has her identity emblazoned across her forehead. It's very overt, and there's no mistaking what or who this woman represents. The name written on her forehead is Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. Mystery, Babylon the Great. There is still some mystery which surrounds this system that's yet to come. The mother of harlots. Now, this mother of harlots is a classic Eastern expression. And this doesn't mean that this woman is a mother harlot who gives birth to little daughter harlots that are running around. That's not what this is talking about. There's a different sense to it. If I say, I've hit the mother load, what does that mean? It's, it's the big one. It's the most gold that anyone's ever found. It's the big haul. Or if I say it was the mother of all battles, it was the greatest battle, maybe the bloodiest battle. This just means the biggest. It's the big mama, if you will. Since harlotry is a metaphor for idolatry, we can take the mother of harlots to mean that this is the greatest false religion ever seen. 
And that's our fourth criteria this morning. And of the abominations of the earth. And the word abominations here is the same word that Jesus uses to describe the abomination of desolation in Matthew 24, verse 15. The mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I marveled with great amazement. Our fifth criteria, this woman is the primary source of Christian martyrs during the last days. She is drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. This is a serious roadblock to those claiming America is the woman. And America, though it has plenty of flaws, does not lead the world in Christian martyrdom. And some will use abortion to try to inflate these American murder statistics. But even with abortions, which is not really what we're talking about here, America is still outdone by China and India. In fact, since Roe v. Wade, America has aborted more than 50 million babies. But China and India abort almost that many every year. The U.S. continues to be the greatest missionary-sending nation in the world. A few years ago, America accounted for 80% of missionaries and 80% of the funding for global missions. We are not looking at America here. And I'm not saying that we don't have our problems. We've got plenty. But we are not drunk with the blood of the saints. And yes, the Catholic Church during the Reformation killed millions of believers. However, they have since publicly repented of those sins. Several different popes, in fact, have publicly repented of what they did during the the Reformation and the Inquisitions. And that includes Pope Francis. Criteria number six. We also know that this harlot spreads her false religion. Revelation 14.8 records an angel's voice saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen. That great city, because she has made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. She's pushing this system on the nations of the world. She made all nations drink of her fornication. She fed her idolatrous system to the nations of the world. Her system is a proselytizing system, trying to spread. Now I want you to consider this statistic. Do with it what you will. The Southern Baptist International Mission Board, the IMB, is the largest Protestant missionary organization in the world. Their annual budget is roughly $300 million per year. Sounds like a whole lot of money. Back in 2005, former CIA CIA director James Woolsey testified before the U.S. Congress. Here's what he said. He said, some 85 to $90 billion has been spent from sources in Saudi Arabia in the last 30 years, spreading Wahhabi beliefs throughout the world. Wahhabi Islam is responsible for the radical terrorist groups throughout history. Think Al-Qaeda, ISIS, etc. Wahhabi Islam. The vast majority of that funding comes from Saudi Arabia. And the vast majority of that funding 
comes from a few families in Saudi Arabia. The amount of wealth contained in that very specific geography is almost unimaginable. Saudi sources are spending roughly 10 times what the IMB is spending annually. That's about $3 billion with a B dollars a year on spreading Wahhabi Islam radical beliefs. Islam is spending the most on spreading her beliefs. Far more than Christianity. Al-Walid bin Talal is the name of a Saudi prince who's one of the most well-known of them. And he sent $27 million, almost $30 million, to the families of Palestinian suicide bombers to support their work. He also offered $20 million to various American universities, including Harvard, among others, um, to install an Islamic studies program at these universities. And the universities accepted this guy's money. There's some serious problems that come from this. And you know, this is just scratching the surface. Our presidents have been bought by the Saudis for years. Um, I'll let you dig into that on your own time. John is astonished when he sees what he has shown. When I saw her, I marveled with great amazement. He was taken aback by this grotesque vision. But in verse 7, But the angel said to me, Why do you marvel? If you've seen Star Trek, you might think of Spock here. You know, why, do you, why are you amazed at this? Of course. This is just how it is. You know, very straightforward, straight to the point. Um, this angel, why are you so amazed, John? You should have known that something like this was going to show up. I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carries her, which has the seven heads and the ten horns. So now we go into the explanation of what John saw. So let's read through this last part of the chapter. But the angel said to me, why did you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carries her, which has the seven heads and ten horns. The beast that you saw was and is not and will ascend out of the bottomless pit and go to perdition. And those who dwell on the earth will marvel, whose names are not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, when they see the beast that was and is not and yet is. Here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. There are also seven kings. Five have fallen, one is, and the other has not yet come. And when he comes, he must continue a short time. The beast that was and is not is himself also the eighth and is of the seven and is going to perdition. The ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have received no kingdom as of yet, but they receive authority for one hour as kings with the beast. These are of one mind, and they will give their power and authority to the beast. These will make war with the lamb, and the lamb will overcome them, for he is Lord of lords and king of kings. And those who are with him are called, chosen, and faithful. Amen to that. Then he said to me, The waters which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. And the ten horns which you saw on the beast, these will hate the harlot, make her desolate and naked, eat her flesh, and burn her with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to fulfill his purpose, to be of one mind and to give their kingdom to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman who you saw is that great city 
which reigns over the kings of the earth. Now, I'm sure that John was thinking like, well, thanks for that explanation there, because that's not much better than the first one. But this is meant to be the explanation. And it makes plenty of sense if you read it about 12,000 times and then read the whole Bible about 12,000 times. We're going to try to boil that down this morning. Verse 8. The beast that you saw was and is not and will ascend out of the bottomless pit and go to perdition. When we talk about the beast, it sometimes refers to the kingdom or the system, and it sometimes refers to the king, the man Antichrist. Every time, context dictates what we're talking about. Revelation 13.3 says, And I saw one of his heads as if it had been mortally wounded, and his deadly wound was healed. And all the world marveled and followed the beast. That's the picture that we're working with here. This mortal head wound. The beast was alive. Then he appeared to be dead. He was not. And then he appeared to be resurrected. And yet is. That's the picture that's being drawn. This is talking about the kings, the Antichrist's mortal head wound. And it appears that the beast had been killed. But Satan brings him back, or appears to bring him back. It's a counterfeit resurrection of sorts. It says, and will ascend out of the bottomless pit and go to perdition. Now, this specifically seems to refer to the energizing power behind Antichrist. That is Satan. Satan ascends out of the bottomless pit, goes into perdition. This cannot be talking about a man. Christ holds the key to death and Hades. And those who dwell on the earth will marvel. Now, marvel is the exact same thing John did when he saw the image of the woman and the beast. The angel said, why do you marvel? He was amazed. And that's exactly what the people of the earth will be thinking. Wow! When they witness this counterfeit resurrection of Antichrist. And this is the same event that that verse, Revelation 13.3, was talking about. And that verse says that people marveled and followed the beast. So this delusion, this counterfeit resurrection will be so powerful that it captures the hearts and the minds of multitudes of people and draws them after the beast. And then we have this profound statement describing those who will follow the beast. Our text says, whose names are not written in the book of life, from the foundation of the world. Wow. From the foundation of the world, God has written names in his book of life. And there are some whose names have been blotted out. See Revelation 3.5. God knows who will choose him, and those are the ones that he chooses. And to those who choose him, their names are not blotted out of the Lamb's book of life. But these who will marvel and follow after the beast, their names are not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. When they see the beast that was and is not and yet is. Verse 9 through 11 Here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. There are also seven kings. Five have fallen, one is, and the other has not yet come. And when he comes, he must continue a short time. The beast that was and is not is himself also the eighth, and is of the seven, and is going to perdition. 
Verse 9 tells us very plainly, the seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. These are not hills. People tend to think that these are the seven hills of Rome. I'm in equating this with the Catholic Church, but there's a different Greek word for hills, and Rome has more than seven hills. This is more accurately a mountain, and mountains represent kings or kingdoms in Scripture. That's very well founded. The interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's dream in Daniel 2.44 fortifies this position that the seven heads are mountains, mountains representing kings or kingdoms. In Daniel 2.44, it's explained that the stone cut without hands, which Nebuchadnezzar dreams, he sees the stone cut without hands coming, dashing the feet of the idol, and it crumbles to dust. That stone cut without hands grows into a mountain that fills the entire earth. That mountain is identified as the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. The mountain is a kingdom. Also, Isaiah 2.2 strengthens this interpretation of the mountains. And also speaking of the millennial kingdom, Isaiah prophesies, Now it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills, and all nations shall flow to it. Again, equating mountains with kingdoms. The very next sentence, starting verse 10 in Revelation 17, there are also seven kings. The New American Standard translation does a good job of capturing the sense of this phrase. It says, and they are seven kings. This equates the seven mountains to seven kings or kingdoms. So bear with me here. Seven heads of the beast represent seven mountains, which also represent seven kings or kingdoms. We've got kind of a picture in a picture here. Five have fallen, one is and the other has not yet come. And when he comes, he must continue a short time. Five of these kings or kingdoms have already fallen as of John's writing in AD 95. One is currently in power, that would be the Roman Empire, and the other had not yet come in John's day. Is it around today? Maybe. If it actually is Islam, yes, it's around. If it's the Roman Catholic Church, yeah, it's around. But there is this possibility that we'll see something else come about. And that's entirely possible. Something that we are not as familiar with. That still retains the fullness of the Babylonian influence. It just packages it in a different way. And that's what all of these empires have done throughout history. They've repackaged the Babylonian religious system. The beast that was and is not is himself also the eighth and is of the seven and is going to perdition. So there are seven dominant kingdoms in view plus the beast system, which is the eighth, which is of the seven others. The final dictatorial system will retain remnants of the other seven which preceded it. And they're all influenced by these ancient Babylonian religious and political systems. The ancient Babylonian religious system it, it follows this story. There was a mother, Semiramis, 
And one day she conceived from a sunbeam. And she gave birth to her son, Tammuz. Later into his life, Tammuz was gored to death by a boar. Forty days later, he was miraculously resurrected. And thereafter, he was known as the Babylonian's savior. That is the system. Does that sound familiar? A little bit. The virgin birth. Semiramis conceived of a sunbeam. She did not know a man. Tammuz is born, later dies, and 40 days after his death, he's resurrected. See, Satan didn't get the details down, but he did get the overall picture. And he picked up a few things about God's plan of redemption. The virgin birth was one of the first things that was made known about God's plan. Way back in the garden, Genesis 3, go back and look at it. God prophesied that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. To Satan, oh, there's something. I can use that. I can pervert that. And Satan handed off this perverted religious system to Nimrod, the first dictator of Babylon. And Nimrod infused that system into his kingdom of Babylon. From Babel, the nations were scattered and the languages were confused. We know this event in Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel. And there remains legends of a great flood in folklore in diverse countries and places, cultures across the world. There is that collective knowledge of a flood. What happened right before the Tower of Babel event? The flood. The flood of Noah. God cleansed the world. He sent a worldwide flood to wipe out humanity, save eight. Noah, his wife, and his sons and their wives. After getting off of the ark, Noah and his sons multiplied. They were commanded to do so. But their descendants, the rest of the world at that time, started to coalesce. They didn't want to follow God's command to spread out across the globe and multiply and be fruitful. They didn't want to do that. They wanted to do their own thing. They wanted to have a one world type of system in the plains of Shinar, right there on the Euphrates. They started building this tower to reach to the heavens. Sinister in its aim a lot of implications there that we're not going to go into. They started building this tower to reach to heaven. They wouldn't disperse, so God had to do it himself. He supernaturally imposed his will on them. He said, no, you cannot do this. I do not permit you to stay together. He confused the language, and he split them up. But that collective knowledge of the flood was carried with all of those dispersed peoples. There's one thing that Satan can't and won't counterfeit. God's redemptive story is one of him reaching down to humanity. That is not seen in any other religion in the entire world. Every other religion Perversions of the true gospel has to do with humanity reaching up to God, not God reaching down to humanity. Satan doesn't want to reach down to us. He wants us to worship and reach up to him. That's something that he can't and won't counterfeit. And that's a huge difference in world religions. Christianity stands alone as the only system in which God reaches down to humanity. I mentioned that ancient Babylonian political system. 
They tried to produce a single dictatorial government under Nimrod. And God had to break it up into different people groups. And now, globalist leaders are trying to go back to that one world type of government. And it all started at Babel. That's where all of this comes from, Babylon. Verse 12. The ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have received no power as yet, but they receive authority for one hour as kings with the beast. These are of one mind, and they will give their power and authority to the beast. So imagine this scenario. You have these ten horns, which we know are ten kings, who have received no kingdom as of the time of this writing. So from AD 95 to the future, they get their kingdoms. They receive authority for one hour as kings with the beast. The beast is the little horn in Daniel who comes up among the other horns. He is one of these ten kings. They receive authority for one hour as kings with the beast. That one hour is just saying there's a limited time that they have. We don't need to take that as literally an hour. But their time is limited as kings with the beast. These, these ten kings, are of one mind, and they will give their power and authority to the beast. That is actually remarkable. Because we don't generally see kings over world-dominating powers willing to give up their power. That's remarkable. They're willing to all band together, give their authority and their power to the, the beast, the Antichrist, for some reason... God raises up and he brings down kings of the earth. They are serving his purpose. Ten kings amass power and with unity, they turn their power over to the Antichrist. And I propose to you that it's after three and a half years that they turn over their power. After the first half of the tribulation, and we'll look at that again here in just a few verses. Verse 14 is my favorite verse of chapter 17. This is what it's all coming to. These these kings will make war with the Lamb, and the Lamb will overcome them. It doesn't even say that the Lamb has to fight. It doesn't say that the Lamb makes war. He just overcomes them. All these kings make war, but the Lamb will overcome them. Four, there's causation implied there. Because he is Lord of lords and King of kings. And those who are with him are called, are called, chosen, and faithful. And that's the most amazing thing of this whole chapter. The lamb defeats him without seemingly lifting a finger And there are some people with him. That's us. We are with him. We are called, chosen, and hopefully we're faithful. Jesus comes with a group who are called, chosen, and faithful. In Matthew 22, 14, he says, Many are called, few are chosen. The ones coming with him are both called and chosen. In Revelation 2.10, he exhorts the churches to be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. Called, chosen, and faithful. Remarkable. Then he said to me, the angel said to John, the waters which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. Again, he's just explaining this symbol of the water. And the ten horns which you saw on the beast, these will hate the harlot, make her desolate and naked, 
Eat her flesh and burn her with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to fulfill his purpose, to be of one mind and to give their kingdom to the beast. The beast, along with his ten horns, will turn against this woman, this religious system. This woman was at one point in control. She sat on the beast. She rode the beast. She used the beast to come into prominence. Once this woman, this religious system, is in the spotlight, once everyone is flocking to her, the beast says, nope, that's going to be mine. He turns on the woman, and it says, the ten horns which you saw on the beast These will hate the harlot, make her desolate and naked, eat her flesh, and burn her with fire. It's a gruesome picture. There's a takeover, an exchange of power, if you will. The beast, and look, I place this, this event, the beast turning on the woman, at that three and a half year point in the tribulation. The abomination of desolation. The beast sees these multitudes flocking to this new religious system. He says, no, I want that. He sets himself up as God, to be worshipped as God. Imagine all of the different religious groups in the world turning to one man to worship him. This is unimaginable to us living today. We look at Jerusalem, we see three groups, Christians, Muslims, and Jews. And they're all immovable in their convictions. They are all exclusive religions. Those three religions are not inclusive. They all think that they are the only way. They're all fighting over this territory, Jerusalem. And they're not happy with each other. Up until recently, you couldn't be a Jew in Saudi Arabia. It was illegal. It is hard for us to imagine. Everyone in the entire world, over across every religious system, to be united in their convictions. That doesn't just happen. The deception is so great. The Antichrist sets himself up to be the sole image of worship. He proposes himself to be Allah to the Muslims, to be Yahweh to the Jews, to be Jesus Christ to the Christians to be Buddha, an ascended master to the Buddhists. Everything is united under him. Make her desolate and naked, eat her flesh and burn her with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to fulfill his purpose, to be of one mind and to give their kingdom to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. Though this whole scene appears to be completely and utterly out of control, it is completely within God's control. And today, as we are living in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, and we see a bunch of craziness, it is well within God's control. He still sits on the throne of the universe. His throne is far above Nebuchadnezzar's throne, far above the Antichrist's future throne, far above the White House, far above rulers of the world. He sits in heaven on his throne. And as Nebuchadnezzar realized in Daniel 4, 
He does according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. No one can restrain his hand or say to him, what have you done? No one can question God's ways. This is how he chooses to wrap up the world. This is how he chooses to reveal himself. These are the ways. These are his ways. Chapter 17 ends by clarifying that the woman whom you saw is that great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. And if you had any doubt up to this point, that should clear everything up. This woman is the city. This city is the headquarter for this world religious system. And we have one more chapter to talk about this system. And chapter 18 focuses on the commercial or the economic Babylonian system. We'll try to get through all of chapter 18 next time. Let's close our study in a word of prayer. Thank you.